right, today is April 24th is another edition of Moon Tower Business Podcast. And today we are chatting with uh, the, the owners of Nixta Taqueria. We have Edgar Rico and we have Sarah Martin, Martin Biggie. Welcome. How you, how you guys doing today? Doing great. It's uh, another beautiful day here in Austin. Uh, yeah, just living during a pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Well, we have a ton of stuff to talk about. Um, and we're going we're gonna to go through um, how you guys got started with, with Nixa Taqueria, um, stuff you, you, you've had to deal with uh, in, in growing your, your restaurant, and then, and then just your background. And then also stuff you had to deal with with the COVID-19 uh, pandemic going on right now um, all over the world. So uh, can you guys just kind of talk about, you know, your backgrounds and, and kind of where you're from originally and, and how you got to Austin? Sure. Let's start kick it off first. Yeah. Um, I'm originally from Springdale, Arkansas. Uh, I know a lot of people know where that is. Uh, just kidding. It's um, one of the prettiest, friendliest places you'll ever go. Uh, it's in the natural state. When I took Edgar there a couple of years ago, he stopped and he's like, why is everyone smiling and waving at each other? Like, something? <laughs> like no, it's just a small town life. So um, my family is originally from Iran. They uh, immigrated to the U.S., uh, back in 1979 from Iran um, on a student visa. So they eventually made their way down to Arkansas. Uh, ended up getting my degree at the University of Tulsa in finance um, and did really nothing with that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, ended up um, kind of having an eat, pray, love journey to Iran. Got to visit a lot of family and sort of do some soul searching. So I landed on Austin, Texas, sort of sight unseen, had heard a lot of really great things about it, a lot of great uh, opportunities for uh, young people like myself, fresh out of college. So I uh, did what any responsible young adult did, lied to my parents and told them I had a job in Austin and just moved down. So um, I've kind of worked in a lot of different types of industries. I started out in international education uh, I was there for about five years, ending up as the director of alumni relations, uh, helping students have really impactful experiences abroad. And then once they come back, uh, trying to figure out how those transferable skills would um, kind of relate to their job searches at home once they get back. Uh, from there, I transitioned into um, food. So I started working for the Peach Tortilla, specifically their catering team. So I was on their sales team doing uh, mostly um, event coordination for businesses um, and for festivals. So I did ACL and South by Southwest, uh, you know, just lots of brisket, lots of rice, doing 45 events in four days during South by. It's pretty intense. Um, that's where I met Edgar, which we'll get into a second, but it was uh, his first week and my last week. Uh, and we just kind of made those laser eyes at each other. It's like, zzz, zzz, and <laughs> I think we were both feeling each other's vibes. So uh, kind of had some chatting, slid into his DMs and it's been two and a half years, I think, right? 
Yeah. yeah. Three years. Oh yeah. Three years. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so, so, so you, uh, did you like your experience at peach tortilla doing the catering business? Yeah, I think, um, for me, uh, a, a big part of the organizations I've been a part of in Austin is, uh, based on local business ownership. So the study abroad company I work with was started by two brothers from Austin, Texas. Uh, I'd been in business for almost 30 years at the point I was there. They're both UT alums, um, the Artazas. And then when I transitioned to Peach Tortilla, uh, Eric, Eric Silverstein um, had, at the time, a couple of food trucks that he had opened and then parlayed that into a restaurant and then eventually into his now catering space, the um, Peach, Social uh, Peach Social House. So yeah, that was a really good experience, sort of seeing um, the food industry and service and hospitality industry from a different angle um, and sort of getting the, the footing in that way. Um, and then transitioned to another local business for Chief Tacos. So I was a senior talent acquisition manager there. So a big part of my job was um, traveling to all the new locations. Um, they, you know, humbly started as a food truck as well. Um, have expanded, I think, to now 70 stores in four or five states. So the primary function of my job was to provide um, long-term training to have a solid foundation for each store, sort of observe and research their respective ecosystems and figure out what was going to be the most sustainable long-term in terms of uh, retention, hiring, staffing, um, unconscious bias training. Um, and then I also ran their internship program. Um, so I was there for a few years. Um, and uh, I, I always suspected at a certain point that I would branch off and do my own thing. I didn't know exactly what that looked like. Um, and then when Edgar and I met, all the pieces sort of fell into place um, in, in starting the pursuit of opening up Nixto Takaria. Um, arguably and admittedly, we uh, kind of were the blind leading the blind. Like we did a lot of research and asked questions, but when you're opening your first business, there's just a lot of question marks and gray areas. So yeah, there's no, there's no rule book. There's no like book on like how to run your restaurant. Like, I mean, yeah. everyone has their own vision, everyone has their own taste, you know? So, yeah. So do you think that your, your experiences like with uh, peach tortilla and torchies tacos, the, the work you were doing there kind of also helped you out a little bit to prepare you to, to jump into this venture? Oh yeah, absolutely. I think everything I've done has sort of been a building block. You can't get from A to Z without putting in some work. So I think that's the the biggest misnomer is that it's it's easy. Anyone can do it, and you can like anyone can do it. You just have to back it up. Yeah. So anyone that's like, got money can run a restaurant, but it's can you run a restaurant efficiently? Yeah. Right. So, that's the real key. Yeah, I would say definitely. I mean, both of my parents, uh, starting from there, if I didn't bring home anything other than an A, then it didn't matter. So I just sort of took that mentality of, like, putting putting in everything that you can, um, doing your best, and just not accepting mediocre things. So you just kind of choose another place and you take that stepping stone and you learn everything you can about the industry on the back end and event management. Then you take another level and you're learning about, you know, all the HR practices, how, what is the 
what is the best way that you can build a community of people within your organization that is fair and equitable. So I think those are the biggest things that I took away from those more like hospitality driven. And then in the study abroad realm, I mean, I was working with almost 10,000 students and administrators, faculty. And so from there, you learn a lot about like different pieces and organization, how you bring them all together to create a cohesive vision. So yeah, it was, I, I loved all the organizations I was part of. Some really great people worked there and really passionate, motivated, and you know, eventually it sort of grows into something else. And I think for me, that's when I transition into something else. I'm like, all right, I, I see this little baby business getting into a much larger arena and I wanna sort of dial it back and go back to more of that mom and pop. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, people don't think about, you know, when you're getting started off, off out of college and, and uh, you're trying different things in a career. And it, like you said, it's a building block to, to where you're going to get eventually. And, and you don't see that, you know, at the beginning, why am I doing these certain things? And, you know, it makes sense at the end once, once you get to where you're going, right? Yeah. So, so when you guys got together, um, and you, all, you all met and then uh, and you all decided to, to, to start the restaurant together, both of you? Did that? Uh, not immediately. It wasn't like a, we're getting together. Like, hey, let's open a restaurant. Um, happened a few years later because so we had moved in and all that, and there was actually a, a cafe that we used to frequent quite often. Um, we had really good rapport with the owner. Um, she had told us like just randomly, like, hey, like I don't, I know you're a chef. I don't know if you'd have any interest potentially but I'm going to be my, uh, my lease ends on this date. Would you have any interest in taking over the lease potentially? So it was something we, I had already kind of started had scouting like locations. Like I was invested in this and knew that I wanted to do this, but I was like, Oh, I don't know. But after she told us like price point, also how close it is to our house it's literally a five minute walk up the street um yeah just all kind of started setting in becoming more real that we were like whoa like yeah we're gonna i guess may open a restaurant yeah, yeah. edgar really like it he's been thinking about this pretty much his whole life so i've been in austin for about 10 years and i kind of know the landscape and edgar his background is way different from mine. Like he eats, breathes, sleeps food. His last name is Rico, which is like literally the most perfect name for a chef. But <laughs> he'll, he can get into himself. But like how we got here is like, you know, there's a partnership here, but there's a lot that he's kind of brought to the table in his upbringing. Like, I don't know if you wanted to talk about that a little. Yeah. So for me, uh, growing up, I mean, mine is a little different. I was born in Los Angeles, uh, West Covina specifically. Um, are you are you a Dodgers fan? Pardon me. Are you a Dodgers fan? I am a Dodgers fan. Born and raised. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Um, but yeah, I was I ended up being raised though in the Central Valley of California, uh, specifically in a little town called Visalia, California. Um, was raised in literally like the farming agricultural hub of the world like 80 percent of the produce in the entire world is grown in the central valley of california um so yeah just growing up i was always used to like 
being on farms, like the constant smell of cow manure was just always apparent. And I was just like completely phased by it. Um, but yeah, I always had like a, at a very, very young age an interest for cooking. I mean, at 11 years old, I'd done my first Thanksgiving dinner. Wow. Um, yeah, I was just constantly like glued to like Food Network as a kid. And like, yeah, just I was just always had an interest, like whether it was that or like being with my like family, like all my aunts in the kitchen, like always just watching and like asking questions why are you doing this why are you doing it that way why do you cut it that way um so I knew at a young age that I wanted to pursue cooking in some degree um and then when I turned 18 after I'd graduated I was already working in a restaurant at that point because I wanted to get my feet wet to see really like okay is this something I could potentially do um so I was working at like a steakhouse I remember the general manager there had told me, he's like, man, you seem to be like really like into cooking. Like you're kind of serious about it. Like I was already like 18 years old working like a the grill station, like everyone like working with like grown men and everyone was like looking at me like, man, this kid's weird, but like he was, he can like hold it down. Like <laughs> station. Um, so he had told me, he's like, if you have any interest in cooking like I feel like you should look into the school um it was called the Culinary Institute of America um it's people consider it like the Harvard of cooking schools it's very militaristic in its approach um it's very it used to be open it was opened by like World War II veterans um who decided to open up this culinary school and at first it was a lot back in the days, especially in the, like the 40s and 50s, it was a lot of ex-military that had gone into the profession um, just because a lot of people with GI bills, it was an easy transition for them. And when you get into culinary school, it is kind of in that same sense of like, when you walk into culinary school, like every single person on campus has like freshly pressed whites, like crisp edges on them. Everyone has to be super clean shaven. Everyone the way your uniform is has to be perfect. Like you have to have the perfect tie on your boat, on your handkerchief, like your tote, your white hat must be perfectly crisp and white. Like everything about it was very just kind of militaristic in a sense. Um, but I mean, they deliver. It's like that school, the talent that's come out of that culinary school is undeniable. Some of the best chefs in the world. Um, so yeah, I went to the Culinary Institute of America in New York, in Hyde Park, New York. It's an upstate, um, about uh, two hours outside of New York City. Um, and that's really where my cooking just kind of elevated itself and just, I really started to see like this whole other world of cooking where it was, wasn't just like baseline of like cooking steaks and meats and like, no, it's like there's a whole other world of like food, like, and we're talking about like the Michelin levels of the of the world, the five stars of the world, where it was this whole new eye-opening experience of food treated in this manner that I had never seen. It just completely opened my eyes where I was just like, whoa, like food isn't just a linear thing. It's It can be like an experience, you know? Like right. when you're going to these meals that are like three or $400, you're, you're essentially paying for like, a performance like you would be going to the show any like theater show it's the same thing but just 
on a different level. Um, so yeah, I remember just going to culinary school out there and just really soaking all that in. Um, and at the time, I, I really didn't, I feel like Mexican food didn't have as much respect. We're talking probably like 2010. I feel like it was still in that same notion. We're still kind of like this cheap food and people in that mentality I was always kind of trying to stay away from that. So I was like, wanted to learn everything else but Mexican food. Um, I wanted to learn French food. I wanted to learn Japanese food. I wanted to learn pasta. Like I wanted to learn like all these other cuisines, except for my own, ironically. Um, so yeah, uh, post-graduating culinary school, uh, I moved to Los Angeles and then had started working with these two really great restaurateurs now their names are John Shook and Vinny Dottolo um I would say these guys are like the kings of LA right now they own up to like 10 different restaurants um just James Beard award-winning chefs um and I caught them right as they were opening their new concept which was called Son of a Gun um it was a seafood primarily focused restaurant um and the opening team there, like, if you look at it now, like, every single one of those people that I was working amongst, like, we all have branched off now into the culinary field and kind of doing some really cool things. So, uh, John and Vinny are definitely, like, I've worked for them for, in their group for about four years. Um, so, helped them open that. And then they opened up another concept with this French chef, um, famous TV chef, his name is Ludo Lefebvre. Um, he is a just culinary mad genius in a sense. Um, we opened up a restaurant that was called Twamec in Hollywood. It was a little 20 seat restaurant. Um, that was the first restaurant that I had ever worked at that was Michelin star cooking and that like actually seen like in seeing it from like a perspective of like a pers like uh you know like a guest like you enjoy it you think it's amazing and then you work in it and it's a whole other beast because it's like you are it's <laughs> it's very it's kind of like gives me like oh my god like like PTSD. like yeah like ptsd where it's like everything has to be perfect like you are on the pursuit of perfection when you were doing Michelin star cooking. It's like even the slightest detail of like you putting like a gram of too much of salt will completely ruin a dish. Like um, most people when they see like food presented to them at like Michelin restaurant, it's like, yeah, it only looks like there's two or three things on the plate, but it's like to get to that, to get to there, like there's so much time that went into it and like every, detail from the way you're plating it to the way your movement on the plate is like every little detail has been thought out to the most like insane amount of time um but yeah like hours worth of you know prepping and all that for like a one 30 second bite is yeah it's crazy like that really pushed my like trajectory um to another level of cooking where i just 
yeah, it's just eye-opening, just really eye-opening because with that menu specifically was, we used to change the menu every single day, literally, like you could never, never wanted to repeat the same thing. Um, we wanted guests to have a different experience every time and being in California, I mean, it's very easy just because the produce there is just on a whole other level, so. Yeah, um, did that for a year. And then after I figured out, I was like, all right, I love this. But at the same time, I don't like myself personally. Like I'm a very like chill guy. I'm very relaxed, like very laissez-faire about a lot of things. Like I'm, I decided like, okay, like Michelin's probably not the path I want to go. Um, I think I'm not. Not really, I don't, yeah, I have no ambition to open a Michelin star restaurant any day. Um, but I do, you know, really appreciate and have enjoy eating that food. Um, afterwards, though, left there and then went to another restaurant that's called Squirrel in Los Angeles um, by a chef named Jessica Coslow. She opened up kind of in the same emphasis kind of as we did as, you know, at Nixta is very humble, small, little, like 10 seat restaurant. Um, and she focused on just one thing. It was like breakfast, like breakfast was the thing that they were known there for. Like just doing simple, really, really delicious jams on some toast. Um, she would have a couple like bowls, like rice bowls, like crispy rice bowls and like, um, and then other simple breakfast fare, just small menu. Um, yeah, I, for me, I felt like that was kind of more my style. And if I could ever see myself doing something, it was going to be something somewhat on that level. Um, yeah, so decided to work there. And that's really, I feel like, where a lot of, I feel like the foundation of Nixta came from. Because the way her menu was set up, I've really loved it was she had her staple menu items she had her seasonal menu item and then like a daily menu item that's something we do at Nixta as well I enjoy that just because it's it keeps it fresh you know you need to experiment with new things and you don't get bored doing the same exact monotonous things every day um and just the way it was it was very like you know relaxing and then but I mean kind of madness though too just because I mean, at that spot, like, especially on the weekends, you would, there would be like two to 300 people waiting in line every day to eat at that place. Like there would be a line down the blocks and blocks, like for people waiting to eat just like breakfast. So yeah, that really opened my eyes to be like, okay, like you don't have to have something that's, you know, expensive for people to come like people can appreciate food at any level it doesn't matter the price as long as it's you know freaking delicious um so yeah i spent about two years there and then after um some stuff had happened with an apartment that i was at and like i don't know i was just feeling like if i ever wanted to do something on my own I don't think I could ever afford to do it in Los Angeles unless I wanted to do it some like outer borough or I don't know. It just, it didn't seem feasible for me. And I started thinking about other places I could potentially live. And Austin just was one of them that was kind of like speaking to me. 
I had had some friends that had lived uh, moved here that opened up a restaurant named Michael Fodage and uh, Gray Nonas. They had opened a restaurant here in Austin called Olome. Yeah. Um, and just like crushed it. Like they had done so well and like it really like kind of inspired me to be like, okay, like they were able to do it. They were cooks just like just like me, you know, and were able to make it happen in Austin. And yeah, I came down here one weekend and just kind of sight and scene was like, yeah, like this is I think where I'm gonna be. Like this seems like a good place. Did did you uh, see did you see some similarities uh with with Austin and, and Los Angeles? Like just kind of the general atmosphere? Um, the vibe, sure. Like definitely the people here were kind of in that same, you know, mentality, I feel like as people in LA where it's Austin's kind of a big city, but not, you know, but everyone here is very super chill, like super welcoming. Like I remember my first week here in the city, just telling everyone I was new, everyone was so appreciative or like super welcoming, like giving me lists, places like, oh, you love tacos? Oh, like everyone I feel like gave me their like best of tacos list in Austin. So yeah, it was really refreshing to come here and to just get this reception from people that one I was new but like were so inviting and welcoming and I was like whoa okay this is this I feel like can be you know something we can make work so yeah um decided to move here but before I moved here I knew uh I had to go to if I was gonna open I knew already I wanted to open a Mexican restaurant I didn't know in what form that was gonna be and what idea so I was like all right I gotta go down to Mexico for a few months to, you know, if you're gonna do Mexican food, you, you gotta learn from like abuelitas, you gotta learn from the people like that are doing it. So uh, I started a journey that um, started me in the north of Monterrey, Mexico, in the north. And then it ended up all the way in the Yucatan. Um, so it was about a four month journey just literally eating tacos every single day uh, and then also working amongst one of I would say the best restaurants in the world working at Puyol um, that's where I really got to see Mexican food you know presented at its highest level for some of the most elite people in the world that get to eat there like it's insane to see that's again where you see that attention to detail kind of in that same ecos as michelin level but put with like mexican food it was something i'd never seen before and it like really opened my eyes where i was like wow like you mexican food is just when it's put on the, a level like this it's it's amazing to see like it just kind of like blew my mind and that was like one part of it but like really I will say the part where we I ended up on like I'm gonna do a taqueria and what it was we were gonna do was I was in Michoacan Mexico and I was with my uncle and I remember one day like randomly he wanted to take me to see a friend's house like out in the country and I was like okay so we packed up our stuff and 
we went down to this little town. Um, and I remember we were looking for this dude. And to this day, I still forget this guy's name. I think it was like Sancho or like Joaquin. I forget. But like, anyways, we pull up to this guy's house and like knock on the door. And unfortunately, he wasn't there. And I remember one of his neighbors yelled at us. He was like, he just got on his horse. He went down the street that way. Like, no, like I'm sure you'll find him. We're like, okay. So I remember like just driving down this little town and like asking like people, hey, have you seen this guy? Uh, oh yeah, we just saw him on his horse. He's down that way. Like just keep going down the street. And finally we find this dude. And I remember my uncle and him start talking and they're like, yeah, can you like, take us back to the place? And we ended up going to this guy's place. And I remember we go into his backyard and I just remember seeing like, you don't like, when you see cornfields here in America, you usually see them in rows, really beautiful rows. Um, when you have, but that's cause it's all GMO corn and like weeds don't grow on it. Um, when you see corn in the wild and it's just literally growing wild, it looks like a jungle. And I remember going to this guy's backyard. And I was like, man, this place looks like a dump. I was like, this is like just really messy weeds everywhere. Um, and he's like, no, 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 like go, go in there and like just go back and you should see some corn. And I was like, oh, oh, okay, yeah. And I remember just he's like peel back the stalks. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, and I just remember the first time when I, I peeled open the stalk, it was like a ear of red corn, and I was just like, whoa. And then he was like, keep going back. Like, there's other ones. And, like, I just remember peeling back more, and there was, like, other colors, too. You had, like, a purple one and, like, a pink one. And I was just like, whoa, I didn't even know corn existed in this color. And it was just, like, really just, like, blown away. And I remember that night his wife had proceeded to, like, make us a meal with that corn that they had there. And it was the first time I'd ever had, like, a red tortilla and I just remember like an explosion going off in my head where I was like dude why you can't find this here in the U.S. like you don't ever see taquerias that are doing like tortillas that are colored like with like purple corn with red corn with green corn blue corn even really um so I was like this is it like this is what you need to be doing like you need to open a taqueria you need to bring it, if you can, import corn from Mexico. How, like, all these ideas just kind of started flowing in my head. I'm like, okay, a taqueria. Like, yes, you're using indigenous corn from Mexico as our canvas. And obviously, we're going to, it's not going to be like a regular taqueria because it wouldn't, for me, it wouldn't be, I feel like, enough of, a push for me to just do something that would be basic like I wanted to elevate the taco kind of in that same sense of how you saw in Puyol like where people where food Mexican food was elevated where it was like it wasn't like grandma's doing it anymore it was like trained chefs with like Japanese chef knives that were you know putting their own spin on the taco so I wanted to do that same thing so I knew it right then and there I'm going to open a taqueria in Austin. Um, and then, yeah, uh, after this journey, moved back to Austin, um, met 
Sarah at Peach Tortilla, and the rest was history. <laughs> Man, that's amazing. That that's a really cool story. And, and uh, so, so that's that's kind of what you use now in in your in your restaurant, right? You 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 use uh, the, like the indigenous corn to for the tortillas and and and. Yeah, we source, um, well, half of our corn is sourced in indigenously from indigenous farmers in Oaxaca. Um, all the blue corn that we do is all from Oaxaca. Um, but then, luckily, I, I didn't even think it had existed here, but there's a company here called Barton Springs Mill, um, run by James Brown, um, who oh, started getting these seeds from Mexico and other parts of the world and growing that corn here. Um, 98% of the corn that's grown here in America is all GMO corn. So to find someone that's growing GMO corn, it's kind of a hard thing to do. And we just kind of fell on our lap with this guy. And I remember one day, like he, they had saw something on Instagram where he's like, yeah, we're now selling corn. And I was like, oh my God, like, this guy's selling green corn and like red corn. I was like, whoa, I was like, this is crazy. Like, I didn't think it's even existed in the US. So yeah, we made a partnership with him and we use some of his corn as well. Cause I mean, we like to support local when we can. And if we can get corn like that, that's grown in your backyard, that's kind of amazing. But for me, I was, we definitely felt like too, that we had to use indigenous corn just cause after trying like R&Ds of, eating countless tortillas um the oaxacan blue corn something about it the flavor the taste maybe the like the terroir that's in it is it's you can't match it like the flavor on that corn is just amazing and that's the corn we primarily use every day at mixta to use for most of our tortillas um sometimes we'll switch it up and use other corns but i would say primarily it's that blue corn from oaxaca did you travel to Oaxaca when you were taking a tour of Mexico? Oh, yeah. No doubt. That's where I spent probably a good, like, four weeks. Um, two weeks in Oaxaca City and then two weeks on the coast in a, a little town called Puerto Escondido, which is, like, I told her, like, if we ever retired, that's where we got to go. Like, sleepy beach town. If we ever retire. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah for real <laughs> but yeah just cool little beach town like surfer town like maybe a couple hundred people that live there but i was like man you can buy a house here i remember seeing like buy a house here like twenty thousand dollars i was like what i was like you can live on the beach for twenty thousand dollars uh wow uh so yeah so what were the what were the markets like in oaxaca Amazing, like Oaxacan markets are, there's one specifically that you, in the middle of Oaxaca City, when you walk into there, it's literally just covered in smoke because everything is over wood fire. Like everything there is over wood fire grills. Like that smell when you walk into the market there, it's one of the, it's like the first time you ever, smell barbecue in your life when you're smelling like that wood burning I that smell like will forever be with me just because I remember like that smell as soon as you like walk into there it was just this insane thing to see also too it's like 
you see for the first time really like especially if you're coming from america you'd be like freaked out because there's no refrigeration like anywhere like seafood just hanging on without refrigeration like you know meats just freshly butchered probably you're watching the dude like breaking down a cow like you know just selling off parts as is you know and then also too like with the ecosystem in Oaxaca they eat a lot of insects so like I remember just seeing bags of like crickets bags of like ants too and I just remember being like whoa like this is it's on a whole other level here like some of the ingredients even I myself was not even familiar with just because Oaxaca is I feel like its own ecosystem in terms of what they grow there I mean it is the native cuisine of pre-Hispanic, you know, Mexico. So that's, I feel like when you go there, when you go to Oaxaca, it is, you're eating like the most original Mexican food that's ever existed, you know? The ladies <laughs> that are making tortillas there, like no, like half of them I feel like aren't even using presses, like just ladies bah, 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 with their hands, just making tortillas, just like machines. And you're just like, oh my gosh, like, why can't y'all be here in America? <laughs> <laughs> so did yeah. you try, did you try uh, Chikatana ants? Yeah. Um, I had them only, I, I didn't have them in Oaxaca. I remember having them in Puyol though. And I remember eat like, it's very like meaty like, and like smoky. I remember we did it. We had done a dish at Puyol with them. It was like a, their famous dish it's their little mini corn it's like a an elote but it's like these little baby corns that you have to like peel back and husk and then we made a, a mayonnaise out of the ants um so we like crushed up a bunch of like little chikatana ants and then you make like an aioli out of it and that's what we would use to cover the corn and then you smoke the corn and it's just this whole beautiful thing when it hits the plate it's like you get this big old bowl and it's like covered in a dome and they like present it to you and like all the smoke goes everywhere and you eat this ant mayonnaise corn <laughs> like it sounds like that's how it's translated on the menu there it's like mayonnaise ants and corn and you're like what am I about to eat like you're like what um but it's actually super delicious like super super tasty um but yeah chikatana ants are one of those things that are also surprisingly like, like it's cheap there, but if you were to try to get that sourced here, it's super, super expensive. Um, just because the season on the ants to super limited window, they're only growing for like small amounts of times throughout the, throughout the year in Mexico. And yeah, when they come out, it's like a frenzy. Apparently everyone, I didn't get to see like production on it, but it's like, crazy to see like a bunch of I don't even know how to pick them up honestly but everyone says it's wild um so yeah chikatana ants especially in Oaxaca are like one of those like unique things that you can really only find in Oaxaca that that dish you were talking about with the baby corn at Pujol I remember seeing that on chef's table it looked amazing yeah uh yeah like seeing that on chef's table and I remember like actually making it and I was like whoa i was like this is crazy <laughs> like how, uh, how, long, how long would it take to make that dish honestly i mean you can be pretty quick about it um 
and you could probably make it in like an hour. But at Puyol, like every, the way <laughs> the way you even tied the corn and the way you husked it had to be, you know, perfect. <laughs> so it was like, hey, there couldn't even be a microscope a microscope of hair left over. Like the corn had to be perfectly clean. The corn had to be perfectly like graded. Um, just yeah, I mean perfection is it couldn't be anything less so that dish would probably take like three or four hours to prep out but if you were doing it in your own home kitchen you do it in like an hour like no problem that's awesome i i try to go there i went to mexico city last summer and i think mm-hmm. i think my wife and i tried to get a reservation like a month or two before and it was just booked up it was it was totally booked up yeah you gotta some people say like you gotta look at a year ahead even to try and book there. Um, so yeah, it's it was I was lucky enough to be there and be a part of it. And then at the end of it too, since you're not being paid the whole time while you're working there, they always do like a thing where if you're a stage that at the end they feed you the entire meal. So uh, I was lucky to get to eat the whole thing too. So yeah, I lucked out like big time to enjoy that meal too. So I got to see it on both ends. That's awesome. And how was it working with uh, Enrique Rivera? So while I was there, he was actually in the midst of opening Cosme in New York City. Okay. So I unfortunately did not get to run into him at all or see him at all. But I mean, his presence is like still there. Like everyone talks about it. Like he might come in at any moment. <laughs> like it was just like, you know, he it's almost like he's he's watching you know like there's cameras there he might be watching and you're like oh <laughs> shit I'm like oh man like, i'll mess this up um but yeah unfortunately i did not get to meet enrique Oveda. um but yeah i mean he's from creating what he created there like to see like that you know discipline on every cook and everyone like really like breathing his ethos of what he is he is that restaurant you know it's really really amazing thing to see is puyol a michelin star restaurant so in mexico there is not there is not the michelin system um but it there is a list that comes out every year um that's like the 100 world's best restaurants for the past like i would say like nine years he's been in the top 10 or top 25 in some way, shape, or form. So unfortunately not, but I mean, everyone knows if there was a Michelin system in, in Mexico City, it'd definitely be up there. Yeah. Nice. So, so you guys started an awesome restaurant. Can you talk about like some of the challenges that you faced uh, getting started, just kind of putting everything together and, and kicking it off? Oh, not at all. Like it was super breezy. Just walking <laughs> the building and opening it up the next day. What <laughs> Um, so we just, just to start, um, it honestly looked like a haunted jail cell when we first got in there. Like it was pretty bare bones. Um, we had to start from scratch, but the building has been there since 1965. So that's both good and bad. It's, it's great because it comes with a lot of like historical backbone. It's been in the neighborhood for so long. It's very nostalgic. It's been a barber shop. It's been a barbecue joint. It's been a hair salon. It's been a tattoo parlor. It's been a convenience store. So on that, we just wanted to kind of preserve and 
and carry on that like spirit of entrepreneurship and not like, you know, decimate the building, just kind of build on it. Um, so going into it, on the flip side of it being from 1965 there's just a lot of random things that you <laughs> that you come across you're like where is this bundle of wires coming from and like is this part of the floor a little bit lower than the other side like we joke that everything at Nix is very askew it's like it's just right there but uh just a little bit like janky but in a <laughs> way um so our biggest hurdle there was um installing a grease trap which, um, so the way that the city of Austin operates when you're trying to open a new business, it's that there's one track. There's not a track for small businesses and a track for someone putting in $10 million, right? So you're all on the same sort of path. And because of that, you're having to do, the biggest challenge was like the back and forth of trying to find like a compromise with the city. With inspectors. With like, inspectors, yeah. because like, okay, so the grease shop is the thing that, as a restaurant, most restaurants in some capacity have it filters any like waste or grease from your restaurant, filters it out into this like actual massive uh, system and then filters out the good water to the city. So our building had a, uh, a really old grandfathered grease trap that was above ground. The previous tenant removed it, which triggered something with the city. So then we had to uh, fully excavate 10 feet underground uh, this a space for a grease trap. You have to go through industrial waste with the city. You have to get a permit for it. So all those things, in order to even get a permit to start, it took us two months. So like going in as new business owners, you can hire a permit expediter and you can spend like $10,000 up front and they'll get it for you in like three weeks. Um, but because we bootstrapped everything and we, you know, we enlisted the help of our friends and our family and all that, we didn't have a contractor, we didn't have an architect, so we just kind of went in like, let's do what we can. So um, it took us a couple months to get the permit. It took us a month to negotiate with uh, the city on the actual grease trap size because they wanted us to get a grease trap for a 10,000 square foot facility and we have a 600 square foot space. So it's just a lot of back and forth in that regard. Um, but once we got over that hump, that was sort of the biggest thing. Um, the way that the inspections are lined up, it's not just like, okay, you have one inspection. It's like divided up into, I mean, like four different inspections. So depending on what the previous inspector said, the next inspector could say, oh, actually, they were wrong on that. You have to do this other thing. Like, no departments are talking to each other. They're all very decentralized. So I would say that was, I would say that was probably our biggest challenge. It's like the admin part of it, of trying to understand, like, all the rules and regulations. Um, right. I remember you, one day we went into one of the offices. And they're only open three days a week. Three days. Monday, like, Wednesday, and for Friday. For, like, three hours. Yeah. Like, and it's like the DMV. You have to get a number. If you don't see them, that's it for another two days. Yeah. And I remember we had walked into, like, one of the guy's offices. And we were like, well, like, what do we need to know? Like, what should we do to, like, so make sure we don't run into this problem again? And I remember he, like points at this book and he's like it's like a 30,000 page book of all the rules that go on with 
opening like specifically in this department he's like you have to follow all of these guidelines right here and he's like just read this book and you'll be good to go and i'm like what like that's that's the answer you've given me read this thirty thousand page book of rules i'm like what on earth like that is yeah insane it was insane and like the community in austin is really great and really helpful like Ryan McGuller from Bird Bird Biscuit, he was a big source of like just knowledge and resources. He was super helpful and like, okay, scope and scale our businesses are relatively the same size. Like these are the things to look out for. These are the things that are really important. And then the other stuff like you can kind of push off to the side. So there is, you know, there is a lot of support coming in from different angles, but I mean, from top to top, top to bottom, like from the tiling, we went to the restore and got tiles from there and tiled ourselves like a friend of ours is a magician with every sort of tool so she came by we always joke that she's our contractor nothi um our friend margaret um did all the murals for us she's just like i don't need to be paid i just want tacos after you open we're like all right that's cool so um yeah it was definitely like a labor of love it took us I believe seven months to open when it was all said and done. Once we got all the permits done, we started hiring, getting in all the equipment. Uh, the Molino from Mexico came in a week before we opened. So that was really nervous. Yeah, too. we weren't sure if that was going to come in time. We were like, oh my God. Like, like this how- is literally our whole concept. <laughs> yeah, this is everything if you don't get this Molino. Um, so I remember the week before it came in, also, I mind you, it came with, like, no instruction manual. Do you want to explain what a Molino is, just in case? Yeah, um, and what a Molino is, is it's the actual ma- machine that we use that grinds the corn into masa. So it's essentially a mill. Um, but what makes it different than any other mill is that it's um, made with volcanic stones. So it's these two humongous volcanic stones that are like turning up against each other. And inside there's like these little holes that it feeds masa. So as it, as it feeds corn. So as the corn feeds into it, it starts spinning it and like revolving at a really fast rate so that the corn is eventually moving its way out. And eventually once it's done, it shoots out this nice airy masa. Um, oh, is that is that stone? What does it look like? Is it kind of look like molcajete? Yeah, yeah it looks like a molcajete, but just it's a round wheel um, with these like little patterns in it um, that are like it's like a I don't really know how to explain it. Well, it, it kind of looks okay, kind of like a tire. It's like that same shape, it's yeah. smaller, but similar to like a molcajete or a metate. Like it's. It's made of that same material, except it's just like reconfigured in a different form, kind of predating like Aztec times of how they used to do it. So it's still using that same notion, the same like traditional way of doing it, but it's now in machine form rather than hand. Right. So using the metate, which is traditional of how you would see tortillas being made, um, but just on a way faster level. Um, but yeah, so we received this thing the week before, um, came with no instruction manual. All it came with was a WhatsApp number and uh, a line. If you need any questions, just call up this person in Pueblo, Mexico, who makes them, and she's your 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 girl. Um, so, ah, nice. Okay. Yeah, that's the stone. Um, so yeah, I remember 
every Molino is has its yeah it they're all different um I had never worked with this one specifically so the day it came in I was like whoa okay this is different than I thought it was gonna look like um shoot so that whole week I was just scrambling cooking corn every day trying to figure out how this thing worked because there's no instruction manual so a lot of calls be made a lot of texts uh all right what do you how do you wire this thing all right it was sparking fire it's yeah that's to a 220 volt and the conversions between mexico and the u.s are different so when we attached it was like literally sparking fires right of two three days before we opened so we're like oh shit this yeah is, drawing is all the power from the building too i remember <laughs> one day we were just eating lunch in it and all the lights turned off and we were like uh oh like something's up like this something i was like it's ever since we installed this molino something is up with this thing um so yeah finally got that kind of stowed away but in some way it's still a learning curve every day with that thing still yeah yeah the other day the one of the major parts in the middle yeah the bear one of the bearings just completely exploded yeah it broke uh, off we tried to take it around austin this is i'm like you know, body shops and all that. And like, we, this is from like the 1940s. We don't, no, they don't, they don't make pieces <laughs> like that. Like, like, where did you get this? And we were like, oh, Mexico. And they're like, oh, okay, like, yeah, you probably have to go to Mexico. Call, you're going to have to call someone in Mexico to get that piece because we don't, we don't even make things like that anymore. And I was like, damn, okay. Yeah. That's wild. So you're not going to find parts for that or somebody that's going to know what to do with it, right? No, okay. not at all. So Hugo Ortega's uh, uncle from Houston, he's like, he owns all those restaurants, like Hugo's and all that. Uh, his uncle apparently is like a Molina whisperer and his wife too, actually. I think mm -hmm. she knows more than him. Yeah, she does. They, we got their number through our corn purveyor. His name is Jose. He works with, or he owns this uh, company called Agropa and he works directly with the farmers in Oaxaca. So he had the contacts in Mexico for us to be able to get the parts, but he also knew of a contact in Houston. There's no one in Austin who can service Molinos, so um, he came up, Santos? Mm -hmm. He came up from Houston one night after he worked all day and just worked on our Molino all night, and uh, he was like, these aren't the right parts. <laughs> so we had to reorder some new parts the following week. We're like, all right, let's do this. but. Our corn, our corn tortillas, I will say, I've never tasted better. Like, that's part of the thing is that there's definitely been an evolution of, even in the past six months that we've been open, of our corn program and how they're tasting because it's a very temperamental thing, right? Like, all the corn that we get from Mexico is different week to week. Like, it's not as though that, okay, this batch is going to taste exactly as this. They all, like, have their own characteristics and their own personalities. So sometimes it require more water or less water as you're like milling it. Sometimes like you need to like work it a little bit more. Sometimes it needs less like touch. So a lot of that has been sort of like a, a, a learning curve during this time. But yeah, I mean, we just always defer back to the abuelitas. We're like, yeah, well. <laughs> yeah, we have really great staff who just, these ladies who can just touch the corn and like know. Yeah, they're like, from Guanajuato. So. Yeah, they're just, yeah, they're corn whisperers. Like, I can make a tortilla pretty well, but like, there's some people that like can just do it like a breeze and like 
the ladies that we've luckily have hired have, are the life and soul of Nixta as well, just as much as just as much as I am. So we are very fortunate to have them. That's great. You also have some really cool artwork on the wall on the I guess it's like the side of the building. How, how did where, uh, where did you get that? Like, did you did you find an artist in Austin to to paint that? Yeah, our our friend Margaret Heidrich. She um she is a um, she is a firecracker. Um, just woman of all trades, super creative. Uh, so she saw a really sad building and was like, you know what, I'm going to help you guys out. So, uh, we sort of played around with a few ideas and, um, our graphic, our, uh, branding, um, was done by Claudia. So she is, uh, another creative individual who, uh, runs, um, Bodega Visual. So she's from Mexico, sort of like kicked it off with the Nixta logo and the Aquico Mes Rico, like all of that. And so Marcus sort of built on that too. Like our logo looks like a mocha If you look at the N, if you look at the I, it looks like that. It sort of has this like old and new thing happening with it. So Margaret wanted to take that and continue on with it. So the guy on the outside, or rather not guy, deity, his name is Zentai Otol. Uh, he is the acid god of corn. And so mythology goes that um, he was actually first born as a woman and then eventually evolved into a man. So there's that duality of the feminine and masculine together, which is a really important part of a lot of like ancient Mexican or rather like Aztec culture. So um, just want to keep it fresh and fun and historical as well. I think that's kind of us in a nutshell. It's like paying homage to like how we got here and foundationally it's like paying respects to the tortilla and how it sustained life and people and communities and culture and history for so long and sort of like bringing that here today like we both are first generation americans like how do we take the tortilla put things on it and it's like create something new but with the artwork uh she she just went for it and showed us a few specs and we're like, yeah, it looks great. Went it was it. middle of the summertime and we didn't have AC in there at the time. So she just asked for Modelo. She's like, I don't need anything. Just give me a six pack. <laughs> I got you. And she was sort of like our unofficial spokeswoman too. Uh, there would be like lots of neighbors from both sides of the street coming through. We're like, what are you working on? Like, what is this going to be? Like, who are you? Um, because it, at the point, like, we were slowly working on things, but I hadn't really announced anything. So um, she just ended up being our like marketing person and also our artist. But um, yeah, and then she also did the murals inside. I don't know if you had a chance to see, but uh, it's sort of like an Andy Warhol take on corn. So there's just different stocks of corn inside. There's the red corn, green corn, blue corn, and yellow corn sort of representative of what we make at Nista. But yeah, just, you know. It's a, it's a really nice touch to the building. It, it looks beautiful. And the name, the name Nixta it derives from a term that it's like an ancient process of like making like a corn or, or tortillas or something, right? Right. So Nixtamal is the full word. Um, Nixtamal is just the process in which you're cooking corn. Um, the, the, it's the process to make masa. So when you're taking dried corn and you cook it with slacked lime, um, in that process, the corn is nixtamalizing. So in that process, what's happening is the corn is softening up. 
Um, the shells are getting tender so that it's more easy to mill. It's also adding nutrients into the corn. Um, through nixtamalization, you were able to provide the corn with nutrition and pulls out some of these like natural vitamins and minerals that you wouldn't normally get without nixtamalization. Um, and then also too, it's the flavor catalyst. It gives it like kind of like this earthiness to the flavor of the corn. Um, so yeah, nixtamal is the word. And I just remember seeing, I remember people was like, lots of people just saying like, we're making nixta in Mexico. And I was like, you're making what? We're making nixta, like nixtamal. And I was like, oh, okay. So I just remember hearing that word a lot. And I was like, dude, that's, yeah, like, that's it. Like nixta. Uh, it just kind of rolled off the tongue phonetically really well and it just sounded good. So yeah, that's, that's how cool. we so we ended up on that. Yeah, and it also allows like the gelatins and starches to start expanding in the corn. So it expands about four to five times the size of a normal kernel. And from there, like the processes after where you're hand rolling and pressing and cooking it, it allows the tortilla to have that elasticity. So as you're eating it, it's not breaking apart and having to be a little bit more durable. So yeah. it's like the glue in the masa also. Gotcha. Some interesting stuff there. So um, you guys, you guys got started um, with uh, Nixta and kind of an interesting time. Like, I mean, you'd been operating maybe a, a little less than a year when the COVID-19 pandemic hit. And uh, can you talk about how kind of how you saw that like transition from regular day to day operations where people were coming in and eating in your restaurant to what we're looking at now? Yeah, I remember very distinctly. It was Friday the 13th in March and it was just it happened to be a really peculiar day like the interactions with guests there was like sort of like a Weird like a palpable goodness. energy in the air something was definitely off and then that was sort of the time that like news was rolling out uh from like New York especially starting out and then like Washington. LA Washington so you know we had been open that weekend and it had tapered off significantly and people were sort of asking about it. Um, Andrew Knowlton from Bon Appetit had come to eat that weekend with a friend of his and they were asking us questions about South By and how that impacted our business and all of that. And that was really at the moment that we knew that like something was definitely off. Like South By being canceled is huge. Like schools being canceled is huge. So Monday we were sort of keeping a lookout, Mayor Adler, um, and made the announcement on the 15th. And since Edgar and I have been kind of tracking and watching what was going on in other cities, like on the back end, we just went ahead and set up like our online system and all of that, we're like it's, it's going to hit Austin next. So, I mean, it was an overnight thing where we had guests in and then the following day, it was just a very abrupt change. So um, we, you know, we had done a little bit of takeout orders before. It was a very, very small fraction of our business, maybe like 5% at most, because it was, it was so humble brag. It was extremely busy and used to all the time, but um, it's just a small space. So there wasn't much capacity for us to also do takeout orders very regularly. Um, but we had the bags, we had the boxes, we had all that to at least start. Um, and I think just similar to other peers in our industry, we were just 
going with the flow. Like we are in a lucky position because our operations are small. Our facade is small. Like our team is small. We, you know, furloughed 11 of our 15 team members so they could immediately apply for unemployment. We provide like still team meals for them if they want to come and like eat eat for free like we we felt we were in a position where like we don't we don't know what to do like we've never we've never experienced this before as others have not either so it's like what it's a moral dilemma too it's like what do you do do you remain open and operate with like even more stringent uh sanitation practices like restaurants or any good restaurant should be extremely clean so mm -hmm. we were like we just didn't know the guidelines so we had to do a lot of research in terms of like what is most impactful for covid and how we keep the space clean and how we keep our team like safe um but there was also no guidelines provided by the state yeah, by the CDC, government nothing. by like anything so you're like do we fully close like for how long and so there's you're just presented with a lot of decisions very quickly and you have to just go with your instinct. So for us, we have a small skeleton crew of those who maybe aren't eligible to get unemployment for various reasons. So we kept a really small crew on, um, primarily are, you know, uh, those with kids, honestly, like we just did, didn't feel right putting them in a position where it was like taking the means away from them like that it, they are the breadwinners of their family so we just kind of keep a safe environment for them for our prep team just two people on prep uh and, and then, then yeah we usually like i mean and thankfully for our operation it's like we were already able to operate it with just two people so it's also easy or the social distance within our capacity so yeah, it was kind of weird thing, but and I would say an easier transition than I feel like some other restaurants. Like yeah. some other restaurants that operate with humongous teams or that are running like two hundred seat restaurants, like that's a whole other beast where you are literally having to lay off almost everyone because it's like you don't have that capacity to be able to run something like that and then the scale of those kitchens that you can't really have just one or two people running a kitchen like that you know so we're kind of fortunate where we're in this kind of sweet spot where we're we can be nimble yeah we can be very nimble and with our operations and our menu it's super small and it's definitely easy to control so we're fortunate in that end but i mean it's still at the end of the day we're i mean there's still like we're down 60% compared to what we were doing before. So yeah, yeah, yeah. it's definitely a huge drop off from what we were doing. Do you yeah. see, do you see it uh, improving? Are you, are you, um, are, are kind of pe more people coming in right now or is, do you see kind of uh, the light at the end of the tunnel or, or is it yeah. just kind of the same path? I would say like, it's been a slow trajectory. I feel like after she was talking about like when March 15th happened, when the stay a shelter in place order went, like that was our worst week ever um, in terms of sales. And I just remember it's slowly been creeping up. Like I would say like two to 3% every week. Like I feel like people are finally getting tired just, of cooking their own. Yeah. <laughs> just sick of baking bread at home, I guess. And like finally just being like, okay, like 
I can at least go out and get like food, you know, I feel like, so I feel like people are definitely coming to it with the reality of that. Okay. This is probably going to be for a little bit. So I might as well try and live a normal life as much as I can. So yeah, it's been getting better week by week, literally like every week it's been getting better. We keep hitting our new best COVID records. Um, Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I think um, I think this is going to impact the landscape of the hospitality industry for a very, very long time. Like, there's going to be certain businesses that just don't recoup, and there have already been many, many, many businesses that have not survived. So, I don't know what the future of our industry is going to look like. Um, I know there's a lot of advocacy going on um, with groups trying to voice the i guess the significance of exactly like what we provide in terms of gdp what we provide in terms of jobs small businesses make up the backbone of america and especially restaurants that's i mean we employ over 11 million people in the u.s um that's a low estimate but you know that that impact is going to be felt for a very long time so I'm really curious to see what unfolds in the next few months, especially as governors are now determining when places are opening back up. I'm curious to know, are they going to provide some guidelines? Is it all going to fall on the business owners? Like, you know, that's a tremendous responsibility too. It's not just insular where it's you and your team, it's impacting others, your guests. So it's like, you want to be as careful as possible. So it's like a very precarious situation to be in where you're, you know, you're, you're wanting to keep your business alive, but you don't want to sacrifice potentially, you know, someone else's health. So there's just a lot of things that we do internally to, um, to help manage that. Um, But it's, I mean, there's only so much that we can do also like when distributors start running out of things which happened our first or the first two weeks of COVID like forget about it we weren't able to access anything from distributors like they were dropping left and right like they weren't able to stay in business so I mean it's it's a domino effect once something is impacted it sort of like drops elsewhere but the good thing is is there's a lot of like collective and community support that's happening um and that's sort of always been a part of our industry is like let's look out for each other so yeah um hospitality I'm, you know like taking yeah. care of love taking care of other people so yeah so we do what we can you know we will we've done meals for our hospitals we've done meals for our neighborhood we've done meals for our team like you know i i'm hopeful like i always of course there's like good and bad days where you're like, well, I don't see any end in sight, like what is going to happen. But I think, I think mostly we're, we're positive. Like people are resilient. People get through everything. This is now our second recession. The, we went through the recession in 2008 when we had just gone out of school. We're going through it again now. And us like Edgar, I was like, damn, you know, I felt like we finally got a footing after that first recession. We're like rocking and rolling. And this hits, but uh, we got through that, we'll get through this. And I think uh, it's been cool to see like our our guests coming and saying like, thank you so much for being open. Like 
it's my birthday today. This was my like little treat. Like, I love you guys. We want to support you. Like, what can we do? And there's been a lot of that. So that's, that's been awesome. Those are little victories that keep you going every day where you're like, all right, like for me, like, especially like being a chef, it's like, you like feed off of that notion of watching someone eat your food and reacting just I'll do that all the time just watching someone bite into something and just looking at their like facial reaction of and you can tell like when someone like really like digs it you're just like that's feeling so it's like really weird to not see that anymore to not see someone just like biting into your food that's one of the weirdest things that's ever happened to me in my career but yeah, it's like those little things that definitely keep you going every day that make you appreciate to serve your community in whatever capacity. But yeah, definitely restaurants, I will say, in when all this kind of blows over, like I will say though, restaurants are gonna look very different for time to come. Like I will say when, especially when this does get lifted, like you're probably going to see servers wearing masks you're probably going to be, you're going to see disposable menus. Um, infrared thermometers. Infrared thermometers. Walk-in yeah, like, space between seats, possibly a plexiglass between seats. Like, we're, yeah, we're just trying to look at the scope of what's happening right now in like Hong Kong and China, what's happening there. And like over there, it's, since restaurants have kind of reopened up, like one of the things that they do is all those things we touch base on. Everyone is wearing server, all the servers are wearing masks, all the cooks. Um, You're also, you have to sign a waiver form when you walk into the restaurants now too, that says that you have not been in contact with anyone who has had COVID or you yourself have not had COVID. And if you're caught lying on that form, you go to jail for potentially endangering other people's lives. So it's interesting to to me to see on what scale it will be like here in the United States, but I will not be surprised if, yeah, when you walk into restaurants in the future, like people are going to be wearing masks. So it's going to be this weirdness, I feel like, because, you know, with hospitality too, it's like you want to be like in a room, like you're feeding off the energy and, I feel like it's going to be kind of grim for a little bit. Um, but, you know, eventually this will all end and this will just be another time in history, you know? So, yeah, it's interesting to see what will happen in the next few months uh, with the landscape of restaurants. But, yeah, we're in, you know, we're in strange times. So, Yeah, that that's interesting to think about. I mean, that, that's something I hadn't thought about. You know, when everything opens up, things there are definitely going to have to be some type of kind of restrictions and people are going to be reacting differently and uh, just got to see how it all plays out. Mm-hmm. So let's let's talk about uh, your your menu a little bit. You you have some really, really creative uh, dishes that that are just not your typical uh, Mexican Mexican uh, food that you'd see at a, a regular Mexican restaurant. You have some really, really creative uh, unique like gourmet uh, items and what like where you get the inspiration for these things like where where do like these ingredients are not they typically you see you see in like a taco yeah I mean so when we're explaining our cuisine I never tell people anyone that like you're coming to a Mexican restaurant because you are going to be really saddened if you're thinking like oh yeah like I know it happens all the time where or it did um where 
across, there's a lot of construction that happens by our spot. So a lot of these dudes, like big old burly dudes working on construction, will come in like seeing taqueria and they walk in and they're like, uh, <laughs> wait, cauliflower tacos? What? <laughs> um, yeah, it's really good. Trust me. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's some of the adventurous ones stay. Yeah. The cool ones, you know? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I mean, for me, I like, Growing up, like in cooking in California, that's like they call they call like California cuisine a, a thing where it's like you know you're using just primarily farmers market driven ingredients, just really great ingredients, and trying to do the very least to what you can do them, and just kind of letting them shine. So like I kind of took that same process and just kind of put that really into a taco, but definitely with some mexican inspired flavors and mexican twist um but it's all ingredients that are grown here in america so it's like i say to tell everyone like we are mex we are quintessential mexican american food like yeah every all the ingredients are american minus the corn really but it's this perfect kind of blend and I feel like there's really no limits, I feel like, to what you can put on a taco. Like, the tortilla is the canvas, and the, you know, it's the, I feel like, the star, really. Like, a tortilla, for me, makes or breaks a taco completely. But if you have a really good canvas of, of a tortilla to start, and then you're, it's like a painting to say, like, you have really good paints and, like, amazing paints and colors. Like, whatever you put on that paint, on that canvas, it's, if you have a good foundation, it's, it's going to be delicious. So, um, yeah, I mean, for me, I don't, sometimes it'll just come to me at night where I'll have a dream and I'm like, dude, I dreamt about this. Let's try it out for a daily special. I would say most times it works. Sometimes it doesn't. Um, but yeah, it's just kind of really going for it. Like I don't ever second question myself on whether a vegetable should be in a taco it's like yeah it makes complete sense why not and I also have the like philosophy that like if you can cook vegetables as well as you can cook a piece of meat like and make a vegetable taste better than a piece of meat then I feel like you're really doing something special so yeah I mean for me half of our menu is vegetarian and or vegan just because I want people to know how good a piece of like roasted cauliflower is or like how good a, a dish that's vegan, which is our beet tostada. It's just roasted beets tossed in a little bit of salsa matcha aioli and then a little bit of avocado crema and some like fresh horseradish. Like those are just like all relatively like simple things. And, but when you're eating that dish, like most people say they hate beets. Like I can't stand beets. I think beets are gross. And I'm like, just try this. Like just put this in your mouth and bite into it and tell me what you think. And most times people really love that dish. And I feel like I knew that dish was like special was, I remember before we had opened, we were like doing a bunch of like catering events. And I remember we were doing specifically this one wedding I remember this big old burly Texan dude, cowboy hat on, like got his Wranglers on, you know, this guy was like quintessential Texan. 
And I remember he was eating, we were making these little mini beet tostadas. And mind you, the beet is vegan, but we call it a beet tartare. But we put it in quotation marks just because it's obviously, you know, it's not beef, it's beets. So I remember the guy was just chowing down on these and he's like, man, this thing's pretty good. And he's like, what kind of beef is this? And we're like, oh, no, 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 sir. Like, read the sign. It's, it's beets. It's vegan. And I just remember his eyes were just like completely <laughs> flabbergasted. He was like, <laughs> like, I'm like, that's vegan, man. He's like, whoa. Like, <laughs> his oh. mind exploded. <laughs> Pretty much, where he was like, didn't, I, I don't, because I remember he wasn't eating any of the other stuff, because it was mainly vegetables, but I think for some reason, yeah. that one called to him, because he thought it was beef, and it was just like, chowing down on that thing, like, loving it, and he's just like, man, some good beef, I'm like, no, nah, dude, that's not beets, that's not beef, that's beets, and he was like, oh. um, so I knew at that moment, I was like, yeah, like, that, that's gonna be one that that's gonna be special so yeah I mean I love having those moments where I'm like yeah like vegetables are really super tasty like don't be wrong I'm not a vegetarian or vegan by any means I love meat as much as anyone else but I think vegetables are really super tasty too and like it's more of a challenge like I say to cook a really good piece like a vegetable to make it as good as a piece of meat if not better so that's always my pursuit when I'm making tacos of how do I make this somewhat almost have an umami-like quality where you think you're having meat, but it's a vegetable, so, yeah. Do you all, do you all have a favorite uh, on your menu right now that, that, that's like your go-to? Uh, for me, my go-to is usually like the cauliflower or the tuna. Um, I just really like the, the tuna just because it's really light, it's refreshing, um, no fuss, just like super easy snack. And then the cauliflower, I just really enjoy just because like the like roasted notes on it and the and the romesco sauce that goes with it like complements it really well. So yeah, those two for me. Yeah, I kind of overdid it on beef tartare before that one. I think that one is a flavor profile I've never had together. So I just I love everything about it. I love aesthetically looking at it. It's just jewel tones, so pretty. And then eating it, you're like. I've never eaten a beet this way before. You know, you've had it in salads, you've had it like maybe in a sandwich, but I've never seen it like composed in this way. So I think overall, I just, I love that dish. Um, but on the day to day, I'd have to agree, like the cauliflower taco is just really cozy and homey and just tastes, that romesco, I don't know, it's, I know what he puts in it, but like, you know, <laughs> I don't know what he really puts in it. It's so good, yeah. That's awesome. Well, I've, I've taken a lot of your time. Uh, I want to kind of wrap it up here soon and, and have a couple more just quick question, final questions for you so we can um, finalize here. Uh, what is like, can you guys tell me what your favorite either, I, I like to ask people what their favorite barbecue place is, but sometimes that, that's a touchy subject in Austin. So I'll ask you your favorite barbecue place or favorite restaurant outside of yours, obviously, that, that you like here in Austin. Uh, favorite barbecue. Ooh, dang. Mm. Mm, you're stepping on some toes potentially, but honestly, <laughs> uh, I feel like it's cause the, it's the one I feel like we eat the most, but I really love La Barbecue. Um, something about La Barbecue, like their sides and pickles are phenomenal. Um, I do love Franklin as well too. Don't get me wrong, but 
I just, I've only waited in line twice, um, but it's a journey to get it. And don't get me wrong, it's phenomenal and amazing, but like, it's just easier accessibility to have law barbecue. So uh, even though we do live like a block away from Franklin, but yeah, it's just something about the easiness and the ex, you know, just you can roll up to La Barbecue still and get some really tasty brisket. I think it's probably some of the best in the city. Um, and for me, restaurant, I mean, I would say hands down, probably Comedor for me. Okay. Um, Comedor, I think what Gabe is doing over there is really pushing the boundaries of, you know, what Mexican food can be and should be. And he's definitely putting his own flavor and spin on it and giving it, you know, definitely a modern take on Mexican food in the 21st century. So I'm really stoked to see when everything, all this goes over to see what will become of Comedor because I feel like it's really one of those special restaurants here in Austin that, you know, time will tell with that what will happen. But yeah, it's, that's probably my favorite restaurant in the city. Sarah, would you agree? Or do you have, do you have other ones that you like? Uh, can taco trucks be your favorite restaurant? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think it's a tie between uh, Cuantos Tacos and uh, Discada. So uh, Cuantos Tacos, just heart of gold. This, the chef there, Beto, he's like seven feet tall. He's in this tiny yellow trailer, mustard colored trailer. And he's like chopping all this meat, Mexico City style. And like the truck is shaking because he's so big in there. But just really delicious tacos there. He has his chorizera where he like dips all of his tortillas in. So he gets uh, his nixamal tortillas, but from San Antonio. So they're like the little two and a half inch guys and it's just, everything is super flavorful. Like he does lengua and buche and like longaniza and just some really tasty cuts um, and just super nice guy. And then Discada, they, you know, they just crush it with that one taco. Um, on like the restaurant end, I just, I always go back to Olame because it's the best service I've ever received at a restaurant in Austin. Like. I think it's super warm and attentive, but not overbearing. The food was incredible. Um, just overall, a really great experience, which is what I look for in restaurants. It's like, how welcome do you feel? And what does the food taste like? And is there consistency in the service? And we've been a few times and it's just, there's a reason why he, why Michael Potashe keeps getting nominated for James Beard Awards. Like he's just, doing something really special and really beautiful. That's awesome. So uh, final question here um, for, for somebody getting, getting started, like wanting, like, I think maybe just after kind of once COVID settles down, uh, the dust settles with that, uh, somebody that's trying to start a food truck or a restaurant, what words of advice would you give them here? Like they want to start something like that here in Austin. Um, so I will say first and foremost, just believe in your vision, like believe in your vision, no matter what, like, People before we had opened had told me, you're going to open taco place with vegetables in Texas. Like, are you crazy? Like, I'm like, yeah, this will, this will work. Trust me. Like, I know this will work. Um, so really believing in your vision is the first and foremost thing. Like, if you don't believe in your own vision, then who else will? So if you don't believe, then, you know, you will never be able to get like people to back you financially. Like, 
if you don't have the means to do it, like you're going to have to have a pitch, you know, and you better be able to sell yourself like on your vision. So really having a strong foundation and believing in what you're going to do. And then the other thing is just really like being patient because this was the first time in my life where I didn't have control of the outcome of what was going to happen. So like took a lot of patience to like grind it out for months and months and months of, you know, just back and forth of something that I had no knowledge of. Like when you go to cooking school and all this, they don't teach you about how to deal with, you know, inspectors and they don't teach you about like plumbing code or any of that stuff. So yeah, just learning to be really patient because it's, it's going to be a journey, but it's, it's worth it in the end, you know? Yeah. I was going to say be patient, have lots of wine ready, but there's not an overnight formula to making something happen. Just ask questions, do the best that you can and just work hard. That's it. I mean, that's, that's the, I think, foundation to anything and getting anything off the ground. Like sometimes things are going to be more successful than other things, but um, having the patience is crucial. Like, you know, having seven months of not having a restaurant open, like you just have to kind of work towards that goal and maybe it's going to take longer than you anticipate. Like even going in to a building where, you know, we were projecting maybe it'll take us like five to six months to open, took more like seven to eight months. Um, just don't get discouraged. That's all. Be patient, ask questions, believe in yourself, and eat some good things along the way. Well, uh, Edgar and Sarah, I took a lot of your time. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You guys have an amazing restaurant. It's, it's beautiful food. Uh, I had it several times and I'm going to have it many more times. I'm, I'm excited to, to follow you guys and, and, and see where the next chapter is once, once this COVID-19 pandemic uh, is past us. And I uh, really appreciate you guys being on, on today. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for having us. This was thank really you. lovely. Um, well, we are excited to see you again. And hope you stay safe out there. Thank yeah. you so much. Thanks for listening to our conversation with Edgar and Sarah and how they talked about their journey to create and open next to Takaria. Check them out in East Austin. They're currently still taking to-go orders. If you liked our podcast, please consider subscribing. Also, consider giving us a good review. We hope you tune in next week for our conversation with musician AJ Vajho. Thanks, take care, and stay healthy.